0: gold go to two thousand three thousand dollars and copper at five bucks a pound and oil at 150 200 find me an oil stock Find me something where my money's gonna grow you know three three months ago two months ago you listen to the business channels and all the analysts are saying or oh yeah you got to keep buying apple It's a quality stock. what could ever happen to apple you know and, and boeing you got to keep buying boeing you need to pay up for it because yeah you're going to pay a 20 or 30 multiple but well, hell, Boeing, you know, there's only two airplane companies in the world. You, what can happen to Boeing? you got to keep buying this. And, you know, and it's all done now. It's all gone. <laughs> and it's going to come back from somewhere. And maybe that's my rant of the day and I should finish there, but I think it's going to come from the, the price of the products are going to draw the public in, and they're going to re-educate the brokerage industry about finding projects as opposed to city on wealth management.
1: This is Canadian Market Watch, the podcast where your co-hosts Jim Check and George Sanders dive into the economy of Canada with industry experts. They cover mining, oil and gas, forestry, agriculture, manufacturing, and everything in between. Asking lots of questions, tough questions. If it's impacting the Canadian economy, they're talking about it.
2: Well, today on Canadian Market Watch, on the Jim and George Show, we have with us Rod Blake. And maybe you can give us a little uh, intro there, George. You know Rod quite well.
3: Sure. Well, uh, Rod and I worked together over the decades, uh, pals uh, from that work. And Rod is a recently retired uh, veteran stockbroker, investment advisor with a uh, heavy specialty in the junior resource sector particularly uh, in mineral exploration and he is also a uh, regular contributor to resource world magazine so rod we're delighted to have you on welcome to the podcast and maybe we could uh, get started by having you uh, flesh that background out a little bit because you you kind of grew up in the business didn't you
0: yeah i did uh thanks for the introduction and uh uh pleasure to be here uh yeah uh, originally montreal uh born and bred and so on uh not french canadian but uh but montreal and um as luck would have it my father passed away at a very young age he was from shirley in spates and my mother at the time uh, had three young kids and a sister out here in vancouver area that uh, they used to come visit and she loved it out here. So, she took the opportunity to take her young family out to the West Coast, and uh, we settled in Kitsilano, and uh, anyhow, through her uh, course of uh, getting different jobs and that, uh, she worked in a restaurant in downtown Vancouver, and she met a fellow named uh, Martin Gibson who was uh insurance salesman slash prospector slash financier of uh, of uh, fellows who were staking uh in those days, the Highland Valley and such things and that. And, uh, uh, and, and uh, he went on and a friend of his was a fellow named uh, Chester Miller, who had a little exploration company called uh, Afton Mines. And uh, when I first met Chester, he was uh, uh, a driller over at, uh, in, on, at Western Mines in, uh, on Vancouver Island. So I was a surveyor right out of BCIT. Um, but uh, anyhow, he uh, had his claims, and uh, my stepfather uh, Martin or Marty, as anybody called him, uh, raised twenty or thirty thousand dollars, and they got a percussion rig on the back of a an army truck that uh, another fellow named uh, Al Miller had up in the Nutsford area of Kamloops, and uh, they did a small percussion drill program on what was to become the the aft mine, and I was the technologist on the BCIT. Standing behind the the rig, uh, spotting the holes and taking samples and such down to the um, the assay the bus stop and down to the assay labs in Vancouver through 1971, 72 and such, all wow. through the drilling. Yeah, wow. that was an uh, that, was, uh, a, that, that was
3: amazing discovery, wasn't it? And it kicked off uh, uh, quite a dynamic area play.
0: It, it did. Yeah, and it happened very quietly at first. I mean, there was no real excitement. Uh, I forget the company, the uh, Highland Valley discoveries and that, with the Bethlehem and the Lornexes and such, had, had come through in the late uh, 60s or mid to late 60s and such. And uh, the Brenda's and such are over your way by uh, flowing that more. Uh, anyhow, the, the the field was getting further and further uh, out of the Highland Valley and going north, I guess. And um, I think Rio Tinto or a subsidiary of theirs had, had the Afton claims and they were looking for something huge like a Lornex and they were as I understand it, were drilling like a quarter-mile or eighth-of-a-mile centers, and so they, they had drilled by a copper showing called the poth Zone, which was on the south side of the property, and then they moved north, i say about a quarter-mile, across the highway uh, where the Afton mine seemed to cut through a, 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 a rock cut, and they drilled on the north side of the highway and hit nothing, and so they basically said, well, it's not big enough for us, and they dropped it, and Chester uh, picked it up, and he said, "Well, there's a copper staining in this rock cut on the highway. Let's put the drill up top there, and, and uh, we'll drill a 300 foot percussion hole. And if you hit anything, we'll go 100 feet east, and if you if you don't, we'll go 100 we'll go 100 feet the other way, kind of thing. And that's more or less where it started a real Tinto dropped it, and and for a small company like Afton, it was a chance to get a to get a start."
3: Wow. now uh, parts of the afton ore body uh, contain significant uh, native copper. Did you did you guys see any of that in the early early drill holes, or was that in the subsequent drilling? No,
0: well, that was the uh, the unique thing about it, and how uh, the market kept discounting it. Uh, as they say, uh, bull markets and discoveries they find the either the uh the naysayers of the walls of worry or whatever. But no, we the percussion rig, the first hole as I recall, didn't get much of anything. Um it was right south of where this copper scene was on the on the highway cut. And so I moved uh I think I moved the rig a hundred feet or so to the east uh and uh, got nothing got completely nothing there. So we went a hundred or so feet to the west and um we started picking up uh native copper quite near surface you know but again these were per- percussion holes and and 300 feet and so i would bag it every 10 feet or so and make a little estimate of what i sort of thought percentage of calcopyra i was seeing in the in the cuttings and i'd phone chester and uh again send it off to the bus depot and they used to hate me there because these bags of sloppy uh, water <laughs> you water know, and uh, uh, in, in boxes not showing up. But anyhow, we worked it out and got them down to, to the assay lab. And then we kept going further further to the west and um, somewhere it, recalling the train, um about 500 feet or so west of where our little trailer was and that where these first hole was, the property dipped down into a depression, one of those typical alkaline ponds you see throughout the interior that dry up in the summertime with the white crystals yep. on top and they and now yeah, we get, were getting down towards that and that's that's when we started picking up in the holes and i didn't really know what it was uh again, i'm a rookie technologist at of bcit and so i phoned chester and and of course what do you mean just pennies i said well chester looks like someone ground up some pennies and put it in the wall whatever and i uh, they're coming up with little chips hey eh, from a percussion rig and uh so anyhow, we he uh, we said, well, sample them and make an idea what you think you have there, and again on the bus and down it went and so on, and and that was the first part of the native copper coming into the into the into the holes, and, um, and that's when the uh, the naysayers started coming in that, uh, well, yeah, you, you can't have native copper in this part of the world. There's no native copper, and so on, and um, there's only just little high grade pockets if you have it. There's nothing to it, and so on and so forth, and they were trying to discount the project, while my stepfather, Mister Gibbison, was basically trying to promote the stock and raise money, and the other side of it. So you had the two sides going at it, kind of thing, whatever. And and the coffee shops and Kamloops and Merritt and so on. Everybody kind of talking about this uh, this Native Copper thing. And then when we got beautiful, that's, th- th-
3: that's quite that's quite common, isn't it? We've seen that in other sort of discovery plays. That the odd one where. There's a spectacular number and everything takes off. But usually there's a really encouraging but maybe not quite spectacular number. And it takes – there's a little bit of a delay, right? It takes a while and a lot of people are, are negative. And as you say, they have to climb the wall of worry, right?
0: Oh yeah, and the analysts, the analysts haven't seen it before, so they don't know how to they don't know how to analyze it. You know, how do you mill this stuff? How do you grind it? How do you mill it? Yeah, How yeah. do you recover it? All this. So all these things kept coming in. Well, it's easier to discount it as opposed to go with it, kind of thing. You well, that was the that, that was the interesting part. For
2: the um the people that aren't geologists or have that kind of background or in mining analysts and that. Mm-hmm can you tell us where the stock was trading at that time? Like it's, it was a penny stock obviously and where was it trading? And then when did we, we see st- ramp up? And then I guess the other big question is where did it end up? And, and, and the thing's still producing how many years later?
0: Yeah. Well, going back in when I was came out of high school that I, I went to BCIT and took the mining course, again, having Mark Gibson as a stepfather, that was my sort of uh, background at that time. So I was going to become a, a mining engineer, but, uh, Life came along. I got as far as going through BCIT and taking a two-year technology course. Anyhow, um, I remember I remember telling the, the my other uh, classmates at BCIT they should buy this app in stock in 1970. It was around 20 or 25 cents a share, as I recall. And I used to get a little commission from the old man. They would have sell a few thousand shares. He'd cut me 20 bucks commission kind of thing, whatever. So that was my my first sales of, <laughs> of stock. So that was around where it, where it started at. And that. Uh, I think they did a financing in that twenty or twenty-five percent range, uh, um, and then after the uh, the stock really started to go, when again going back to that pond zone there, um, it, it was quite wet down there and sloppy. We couldn't get this uh, uh, rig on 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 uh, track um, uh, a tire mach- uh, track into the, in the pond, so we had to build a causeway across, and that took some time to get the to get loaders in there and everything else and scrapers and to build this causeway across this couple thousand foot long pond area. Well, we finally got that done, and the stock settled out 10 or 15 cents Why that was being done, because it was a few months delay to get that all sort of built. And then Chess, with his uh, contacts, he was always the guy to save a penny or two. He he found some guys in Northern Alberta who had were drilling seismic holes for the oil and gas industry with rotary rigs. And they were, of course, uh, uh, they, were, they were going through spring breakup or something like that, whatever. So they he got them to come down, and the, the holes were getting too deep for the percussion rigs. So we started drilling 500, 600, 1,000, 1,500-foot, uh, six, eight-inch diameter rotary rigs, uh, rotary holes the opposed to the, the smaller percussion. And then the copper started coming up from 1,000 feet down, and we were getting, like, pieces of copper the size of my thumbnail. You know, the only wow. one missing was the was the print of the Queen on it. Know, you know, whatever. <laughs> wow. and,
2: and
0: and the and the, the mud coming up was the bright red. And wow. it turned out that was that was the fault later on between the Iron Mass Bathless and the nickel volcanics. That was the fault where I everything, mean, the the juicy stuff all kind of gathered along the fault or whatever. Yeah. But that was the uh then they knew there was basically a, gonna be something there of magnitude. And that's when tech was uh tech figured it out and uh they came in and started buying up the stock, and or Dome, um, a subsidiary of them, they were fighting over the company, and it went to about 10 or $12, as I recall, and finally tech our control of it, and they fired Chess and my father and everybody else, but basically but me, and uh, they took over, and then in 1973, did the diamond drilling, and that proved out the, the pit, and from then on, um, the stock languished for a while, as I recall, because uh, there's something happening in B.C. called an NDP government came in with Dave Barrett in 1973, late. And the, the Mineral Royalties Act came in and basically um, tech just shut the whole project down.
3: Shut everything in B.C. down.
0: Yeah. So I spent two years basically doing survey projects and drilling water wells and, and doing things with their engineering people that we were doing there to find uh, water sources for the mill and and tailing cawn, drill holes, and this kind of stuff, just background stuff. And it was finally put in production uh, in 76, as I recall. That's when I left. And I've um, been an off-and-on producer from then till now. So
3: um, the I was, I was reading the other day, Rod, there was a, quite a famous corporate governance lawsuit because there were conflicting offers from uh, Placer Development and from Tech. And and the uh, the court the court document background or the paper I was reading, uh uh Chester's preferred partner was Placer, and Tech started buying the stock in the market. And Tech's eventual position or not eventual, but initial position to kind of get control cost them sixteen million dollars and the the price of the stock, Jim, uh, at that time was $13. So rather than the friendly negotiated takeout, uh, tech actually went into the market and was buying the stock out of the market. And, of course, in those days, there was uh, fairly limited issued capital. So uh, it got to the point And eventually, they absorbed all the stock that they didn't own uh, in the very late seventies they did that. And the price of Afton by that time was fifty bucks.
2: Wow.
0: Yeah, the last the last few people got taken out of close to fifty dollars. I think my old man got his last hundred thousand shares or something taken out or twenty five thousand shares at 49 or something like that, whatever it was. Um but by that time though the most of the stock didn't retreat a whole lot after that. I mean it was it was trading but it wasn't the wasn't the buzz the excitement it was back in the discovery time. It was more it was all after was a subsidiary of tech by at time, and so on and uh um, uh but yeah, it did get to the forty nine or so dollar range okay?
3: so and we uh, we also um we also were discussing the other day you know the when when an exciting discovery or an exciting uh, uh you know expansion of a known deposit or something like that happens uh typically. All the claims or all the the area, the prospective geology that's not already owned gets staked up by usually by prospectors and claim stake guys. And then that's often vended to other junior companies, and you get what's called an area play. And and I believe at the peak of the Afton area play, there were 40 other juniors uh, participating up there.
0: And, I ain't it, about forty, but there's a lot. There's a big, There's a lot of them. They, yeah. they, they, they probably most of their shares trading in the Vancouver Stock Exchange in any given day were in the that oh, area. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you, Do you want to
3: talk for a few seconds just what it was like in the local brokerage firms in
0: Kamloops? Well, uh, uh, Midland Doherty was the place I went to. There was two or three brokerage firms in town, as I recall, but Midland was the one that that I went to. and such, and, and basically, it was it was. Uh, in the days of the old bullpens, and that kind of thing whatever it was basically the brokers that have five or six clients basically sitting around their desk um, watching them work all day it and was, it was a quite amazing thing and 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 you didn't have the computer stuff you had now basically there was the tear tape going across the the uh, top of the wall on the ceiling so had you remember the lime green orange balls that were stuck to it you know and the, the yep. trades would go by and ask you know whatever whatever price it was and and they only took market orders. And so by the time you put in your buy or sell, or whatever, it took sometimes a half hour or an hour. But I finally got your, your confirmation of your fillback and whatever. and It was, it was quite something. And, and you know, but, you know I, I look back at my last years at the, in, in the brokerage business, that everybody knew everything and all the details they had. The clients had to know the size and the bids and the offers and who was doing what and where and everything else. Grace, back in the afternoon. thing all he all he saw was the kicker going by on the board, and you know, the trades went through, with, you know, and and uh, people made or lost forever. But there there, there, were, there was a sort of like um, a, 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 an excitement about it because of all the unknowns, you know, whatever. It, it wasn't the whole everything wasn't all figured out like it is, you know, the recent years and so yeah, on. Yeah,
3: I, I but, think for I think for any of our our younger listeners, um, it's it's worth pointing out and. This seems like a long time ago. Those of us who were there, it actually doesn't seem that very long ago. But uh, in in uh, before the nineteen sort of late nineteen seventies, um, the the all of the investment industry was very much a a hands on. Uh, now we have the advent. You know, hardly anybody deals with stockbrokers anymore. They have their own accounts and. They're able to go and negotiate and uh, uh, not negotiate, navigate around in in their system and put in their own trades and follow their portfolio uh, instantaneously. But in in those days, people actually hung out in, and we used to call them storefronts, uh, because they were brokerage firms uh, on the first floor or street level uh, in Vancouver, Howe Street, uh, in New York, or in Toronto Bay Street, and often the downtown business people would go in there early in the morning uh, during their lunch hours. and as Rod says, they would actually sit with their broker. Uh, they would congregate in a little meeting area where there was a um, ticker tape. Uh, some of them actually had had little chalkboards. That mimicked uh, the information coming from the actual floor of the exchange, so the quotes were changing place in real time, um, and that continued into the late 70s. So it was very much a it was very much a different era, and when things were good and exciting, you can imagine in that that kind of physical space where you're. You're rubbing shoulders. You're overhearing other people have conversations. You might actually see a company principal walk by. You know, maybe one of the directors or one of the geologists, and you know, you'd you'd follow them into the cafe and try and uh, uh, buttonhole them for a few minutes to get information. Um, so definitely, definitely, things were um, uh, were different in those days, but. Along the differences where, you know, the the dollars are are a little bit smaller, um, probably greater purchasing power in those days, but a little bit smaller dollars than uh, um, uh, than we deal with today. So, Rod, let's talk about you. Uh, you do some other things. You're uh, you success. sort of me. Pardon me. Successful small businessman for a while, and uh, then you get into the brokerage business. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about some of uh, those adventures.
0: Uh, yeah, well, I, I did that in. Uh, uh, I left Camloops and I, I took the securities course by um, by uh, correspondence, which was kind of rare to do at the time. But the a small center, that's what I did. Uh, um, took the court securities course and uh, and I talked to my stepfather about uh, you know going to work either in Camloops that and. And by that time, of course, the, uh, the Afton thing would die down and such. And the brokerage business in Canada was, was a nice place to live in that. But, but he said, if you're going to go in it, you know, you might as well go down to the center of the exchange and, and start there. And, uh, and, uh, so I went down and, uh, 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 Mark had an account, I don't know if we're allowed to mention names of firms or not, but he had a an account with a few firms down there. So I went down and, uh, Talk to uh, uh, different people, and uh, basically came down to, uh, well, any son of uh, Morty Gibsons is, is kind of good enough for us. You know, We're, like where do you want to start, and when do you want to start? So I basically got a got a desk in a corner with uh, you know, and uh, and uh, you start off. I guess your book is your family, your friends, and so on. And uh, and we, uh, I, I you know, built a built a book up, and as uh, you said before, mainly resource, but. Over time, you know, you spread it out, and you know, the wealth management thing comes into play, and so on. But, uh, but uh, got involved with uh, the discovery of the Huckleberry Mine up by Houston, BC, and such. And uh, wasn't a uh, stock market success, but again, another mine that kept a town of like Houston going for twenty-some odd years and such. And um, yeah, and went through the Breeks and uh, whatever all the things that came along, and. And until uh, the last summer in June, and sold my business, and uh, now hang out here in right soon. Right on. So go, go ahead, Jim.
2: Yeah. What are some of the biggest discoveries in Canada in the, in the time that you were in the business? Like not not necessarily that you were involved with. What do you think some of the biggest discoveries were?
0: Oh gosh. Uh, well. Money-wise, I guess the biggest one was a non-discovery, which was, was the Brex thing, I suppose. There, as far as money being sent into an area, I guess the Hemlo thing in Canada probably. I don't know George can confirm that or not, but the Hemlo was a lot of money because because uh, that was fought over over three by three or four companies and so on. That was a big, big, big thing. Uh, I was involved before I got in the brokerage business when I, but between careers, kind of thing. Uh, the other thing my stepdad did was he. Uh, financed a little prospect named uh, Orville Gillespie. And he had a little gold mine or property outside of Hope called the Carolyn Mine. And it happened to drill some holes and come on stream right at the peak of the gold market in 1981. And that little company there that never produced more than a thousand or so ounces of gold uh, went to $55 a share. $55 in 1981 money. That was probably the biggest stock market gain that I was ever involved with that made millionaires upon millionaires that little project absolutely
3: R- rod we kind of uh we kind of overlapped uh in in the business and certainly uh there was the Hemlo discovery um there was the sort of whole i guess it started with Casa Berardi, but there was that whole um uh, Mid 1980s flow-through boom, um, and it wasn't Jim. It wasn't a particular discovery of any era or area, but because that tax money was uh, readily available and sought after, uh, it came around at the same time as uh, as uh, the Canadian government shut down the uh, the MERB. Tax shelters, multiple unit residential building, uh, tax shelter. So that money uh, came into Canada in a big way, right across the country, pretty much every province. So that was uh, that was a boom. Um, SK Creek uh, in, in the late eighties after the, which is, uh, which is
0: now the, uh, golden triangle thing. They've reinvented it, I guess, but back in the day with Mr. Pismill out, it was SK Creek and skiing and those kind of things that were going on. Hmm.
3: Ab- absolutely. Hmm. And then we, you know, the, the real interesting one was, uh, the discovery of diamonds in Canada in the Northwest territories and, Subsequent to that, a uh, couple-year-long area play, I think starting in 1991, we had two substantial ore bodies, uh, both of which are still producing as far as I know. Uh, but that was a whole new industry in, in Canada. Uh, it, and, and, and Rod, as we were discussing earlier, uh, the wall of worry, when that thing first started to get some attention, you know, everybody in the Canadian geoscience space said, "Well, there's no diamonds in Canada." We all know that, and, <laughs> and which, which yeah. of course, which of course, all the people that said that were wrong, um, oh, and yeah. that was a tremendous. Uh,
2: were they the uh, same people break. that said no native copper?
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh. Yeah. Well, the uh, the there's, there's many guys that you know. My my stepdad used to one of his claim to fame was that. Uh, one of the big brokers downtown. He basically, uh, he cost him two uh, two houses and two marriages by shirting his discovery of uh, diamonds heading into our office. And maybe George, were there too, but he was talking about this diamond property in the East Kootenays that he had. And he had some little samples there. And most of us were just there basically for the for the free lunch they gave and so on. But anyhow, about six months later, the, the numbers came out from from the numbers up north and that and so on. Uh, the, and he didn't even, didn't even really talk about that property because the numbers weren't there yet and they were still, I guess, evaluating it and so on. And, and then all, you know, all hell broke loose kind of thing. But, yeah, it, it just came out of nowhere. And that's how these discoveries tend to be. You know, they, very, very all of so. a mm-hmm. sudden, something happens you when know, it gets the attention of the
2: market.
3: Very much so. And, Jim, to put that in perspective, Diamant was a 20-cent stock that ended up going out at $60 a share.
2: So I've, yeah, I want to take yeah. you back to the, the drill holes, uh, Rod, in um, in Afton there. When did you feel mm-hmm. like that that was a real deal, like for, for you guys, when you're watching the stuff come up out of, the, out of the ground, you're seeing the copper, the native copper, and that. when did you start feeling really confident that that you had something there? Well,
0: basically, we started when, when the percussion holes on the east side of the pit were coming in copper to the bottom of the hole, basically through a 250, 300-foot hole, depending on what, you know how far they could push it down they were coming back basically copper cuttings to the bottom
2: maybe just explain uh, that feeling though when you're standing there and you're starting to see that stuff
0: well yeah it's 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 kind of like it's you're in wonder of the whole thing you you got me first of all i was a young technologist and and uh i i did some i done some basic clean work and serving and so on and so forth but to be running a, a drill program that you're seeing this kind of results, and and I and George can tell you too. Most you know most guys are running a drill. You see a lot more barren and uh, geological success holes, as they call it, than you do economic success. So to to stand beside a rig that's pulling out three hundred feet of of one percent uh, copper, like in doing two holes a day like that, yeah, you're just sort of um, you, you just sort of caught up in this thing, you know, you just can't wait to get to the next hole kind of thing, whatever, and get, the, and get the samples down to the bus pole and pop in and it <laughs> and check on the stock price and so on, you know, and, you know, a, a lot of people bought houses and that kind of stuff and paid off mortgages and tablets in those days. And just as they did in Kelowna and, and the diamond days and so on, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it changes a whole lot. Uh, uh, and, uh,
3: and, and I, you know, I, I had a, Uh, not similar but a little bit related experience early in my own weight. Uh, you you know, you, 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 it's a bizarre, uh, it's a not bizarre, it's, it's a really amazing feeling of excitement and
0: and enthusiasm. So, the uh, the worst part of the whole thing with Afton was when NDP got in the Municipalities Act. Like they shut the thing down for basically, I think it was two years, and we went from having you know three diamond drills and a, at that time, I think it was about three diamond drills and two or three rotary rigs and uh, drilling stuff for water wells and tailings ponds. I mean, there was, I don't know how many hundreds of guys were running around that property with uh, brand new pickup trucks from Chevrolet and all these things and all? To basically just me and a uh, and a, an engineer sitting there for two years and and my dog, uh, kind of like you know, watching the world go by. It was like, it was sort of like, it was like heroin. You, yeah. The, the, the supply has gone. You know, what do you do? You know, it's and, kind of frustrating. But it, it? it finally came back to the production decision when they made the deal about putting the sculpture and that kind of stuff in, you know, and then, it, then it gears up again kind of thing. But, uh, up, up, up until then it was, uh, yeah. You didn't want to take holidays, whatever. Every day was just, uh, let, let's yeah. see how far this thing is going to go. You know, whatever. it's really, so, yeah, yeah,
3: it's really exciting. So, um maybe as a broker, uh I'm I'm sure you went through this a lot. Um, you'll uh make your clients aware of certain things that are going on and they don't bite. They don't give you an order, they're not and then certain other things, they're all over and maybe they even <laughs> buy more than they should. So just wanted to ask your thoughts a little bit on, on client motivation in the space. What were some of the dynamics that would get your clients enthused and what were lacking in the stories that they weren't enthusiastic about? Uh, well, the, well
0: the, the main thing was that the, the, the clients got enthused with- if they heard it from somebody else as well, kind of thing, whatever, they might've heard something from me. And then, but then they maybe be talking to somebody else of where they work or whatever they do. And Oh yeah, I heard that, that story or that thing. Yeah. That that sounds like, you know, my broker said it was a good deal too. You know, you yeah. get some of the, you know, the there's there's more than just the one guy on the other side of the phone that tells you. And, and the other thing was, of course, if you had some success, the next one's always, well, sure, I'll buy some of that. You know, that's, that's easy. You know, if you've, if you've done well in Carolina or in Athens, well, I'll buy, uh, I'll buy Comet, you know, whatever, to this next door. And if it doesn't work out, well, so be it. I made money on Afton. But when you've had two or three Comets or rolling hills and that, that didn't work out, okay, well, I'll buy a little bit kind of thing, you know, whatever. And and until the momentum gets rolling again. And, that's why at the end of an area of play, right? You know, the money's, uh, you know, the bigger financings are done, the higher price, and so on, because everybody's basically all all in. You know, and at, at the beginning, so, it's all well. Prove to me it's, it's going to be good. You know, exactly,
3: exactly. So we, we, we sort of saw that dynamic. Some of the things you're talking about in terms of, uh, you know, validation by others, and uh, and then things ending up not not working out so well. We saw that dynamic in the cannabis space recently, and and that market really started to take off for all the little wannabe guys uh, when um, uh, Constellation Brands made the huge investment in Canopy. Mm -hmm. And that sort of validated that space for investors and it freed up the, the, it freed up, you know, people got the wallets out of off the hip and started opening them up and spending some money. And then, of course, when the thing got priced at ridiculousness, which is what happened to it, um, it, it went the other way. And uh, you know, I used to always say, I'm sure you've had a, a similar experience, mm-hmm. that um, once the finality in a new discovery happens i.e. there's a bid by a major or uh, there's a feasibility study produced. That's usually the end of the area play. That's usually the end of the speculative run. And, and I would say that the reason for that is we now have the, the deposits constrained. We know how big it is. We know how much it's going to cost to put it in production. Or it's gone. It's taken out by the bigger mining company. And so now the fuel that's driving the fire of the speculative play for all the related companies has disappeared. There's no more there's no more new information coming. And
0: yeah, uh, and you get you, you, you get the transition where the money then goes from the spec hands into the institutional hands. The institutional mm-hmm. buyers there to buy to buy it up at ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty bucks whatever it might be and They'll sit there for two or three years accumulating it while those studies are going on and such, and permitting and all these kind of things. For the spec guy, he's he's seeing well. i would double my money, three times my money, or a ten bagger. Then he's he's going to move on into the hopefully the next discovery or the next thing that becomes the you know the next the next mark.
3: And maybe from some of the people running the junior companies, what were successful. Uh, investment or speculative strategies. Uh, I'm sure you had clients that consistently made money in the space and other clients that maybe consistently didn't do so well. I, I, I know most guys, uh, most guys that were in the brokerage side of the game experienced that. But so, yeah. so talk a little bit about what makes a successful speculative strategy.
0: Well, you go back to the you know how you what where your your sort of entry point is and that mine was growing up with a uh, again a quasi prospector turned into a financier and then the people he knew and such and he always told me when I when I first started in in the business in the broker side of it I said you know I, I bounce different deals off and he'd say well who's in that and who's in this and so on and sometimes he'd say yay or nay but it, it always came down and he said Rod you. You stay with the guys who helped get you there. You know, the uh, the Chester Millers of the world and then his world and then the, the day of the Ross family. So So when Chester moved on to Glamis, I moved on to Glamis a little bit, That's, you know, whatever. Yeah, and, then, so. And, and so on, you know, whatever. And then uh, uh, Manera Alamos is the, the last one, so on, you know, whatever. But uh, 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 Castle Gold and so on, you know. And some were big successes, some were small, but. Chester did it more than once, you know. Whatever. Yeah.
3: You would you would say that uh, you did very well following the uh, serial entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 he did it for the love of what he was doing. Like he he was a, you know, I don't know how many what, what he was worth after Afton, but you know, there's a there's a big property in, you know, in Maui that <laughs> he had, and places in Europe and so on, and and whatever. I mean, he did. You know, they don't do it for the money anymore it's it's the you know they're doing it for the game to keep the dream going it's what they do and so on and and uh you know it, it's not just to push the stock up and sell it and and pay off the mortgage kind of thing they don't they don't think that way you know whatever and uh um so when they get a project you, you can see the nurturing it and so on and you see the people they bring around them the the, the same team will go on to the next one and you know, there's groups around Vancouver, as you know very well as I do. You know that they've done it time and time again. You know, whatever. And uh, and uh, uh, some have the excitement of all the the stock market, which is like you know going back to the peasant plays and so on. But some have they just built companies and they they spin off the company and another one or merges and so yeah, on. That's
3: the that's uh, yeah. a really that's the really And yeah. they're running companies, but the their their business is really uh, packaging up, packaging up, uh, cheap stock, creating some kind of a story to tell to people, no matter how true or untrue it may be. And then exiting and, and they're really just salesmen, but, but the guys that are actual resource. And I think we should be very clear. None of those guys hits every one of them out of the park. Uh, and occasionally, one of those guys will strike out on an idea, but over oh,
0: yeah, it's, time, it's, it's, it's not an easy business. It's not a no, fire. I mean, either. I mean, when I talk about Chester doing it, that was over a career standard probably some fifty-some odd years. You know, so, you know it, it, it's not something that uh, you, you know you don't get five minds in ten years kind of thing. Whatever, it, it, each one takes time and and. The clients who lose a lot are the ones who don't have the patience to stay around. They they they, they yeah. jump from ship to ship to story to story, and every time you you move a position, and there's a cost to moving it, and and then the pitfalls of you know getting it on something maybe at a too high a price and selling lower and and whatever you know you you can trade yourself out of a out of a pretty good portfolio. Yep, there the, the,
3: the, there are a lot of guys who uh, there are a lot of guys who do okay for themselves, but the guys who make Serious fortunes uh, and also serious money for their investors are the people like Chester that find deposits like Afton or, you know, the diamonds in the Northwest Territories or Boise's Bay in Labrador. These mega, uh, the Highland Valley, which has been going since 1965, uh, you know, The the backers, the entrepreneurs, we call them promoters, uh, the brokers that were finance guys behind that that helped them raise the speculative money, uh, the investors and the market players that participated in those stocks, usually you make more and better money. Uh, Sometimes you have to be patient with it, though, uh, than you do just trading, uh, you know, trading a hot temporary idea.
2: So how in this, in this new world, you guys are all connected, you've been working in the industry for 30, 40 plus years, and you know the people, you know the, the players, but how did new young people get into this market because like, they don't have that access? Like how is, it's been a, a pretty crummy market for gold and mining stocks for the past, what, 10 years, 15 years? You could, are probably pushing out a lot of gray hair, and a lot of them maybe have enough money. So how is this opportunity going to be put in front of people that, that were in the cannabis stocks and all that? How is the industry responsible to, to get that message out? And, and, and I think some of that stuff, the Briex stuff, and some of the, the, some of the newsletter writers maybe aren't as, as upfront as they should be. So where do, where do they get better information? Where do they go right now to find out where the next big discovery is?
3: If if we were if we were even five years ago, I I I would recommend you go find a guy like Rod. Go find go find a broker. You're going to pay a tiny bit more commission, but he's going to be able to he's going to be able to stick handle you with you. He's going to be able to help you uh, analyze or look at opportunities. Uh, he's going to be able to make calls or he or she, uh, within their network to, you know, track people's reputations and maybe talk to some technical people. Maybe they know the area that this particular company is working in. But there are fewer and fewer guys like Rod. You know, Rod's not doing that anymore. And a lot of other guys I know that were really good at that, they've either retired uh, or, you know, some of them are even dead. Uh, they're out of the business. So your question is excellent, Jim. Um, I guess the first thing I would say is you have to be a little patient. You have to go on a bit of a learning curve, so you have to try and find as much information as you can. Um, And that means you're going to be on on the Internet a lot. The downside of that is don't believe anything you hear on the Internet. because most most people have an agenda. They're trying to sell you a subscription or they're trying to get their hands on your money somehow, some way. Um, you mean it's
0: not all true? Or no?
3: <laughs> and, you know, we're we're trying a little bit to, to answer our own question, Jim, with just having people on here, not making recommendations, just kind of laying out how the, how the business works. Um, but I would say if, you run across in 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 doing your information uh, information gathering your research if you run across a story phone the company and try and get instead of the person whose job it is to answer shareholder questions so the investor relations guy try to own you know as opposed to what kind of a paycheck they're they're taking and you know try and try and get a gut feel for how the guy responds to, um, you know, some challenging questions. And usually you can develop a pretty good feel and maybe that story doesn't win for you, but maybe the guy's next story does, as Rod says, yeah. you know. Stick with the serial people. Yeah. What would you well, say what about these,
0: that, Rod? What, uh, you know, one of the things I'm observing, I mean, I'm in the sidelines now looking, looking at it, but Every cycle is different, you know. Whatever, sometimes you know it's it's the luck of a kid standing beside a, a drill outside a, a, a highway cutting in loops, and sometimes it's a, a, a geological theory about uh, a, 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 a chain of events that happened across uh, the Tundra, the Northwest Territories, and so on, and so on. And but I think this time the the push of the market and the juniors is going to come from the public itself, right? I think the events of the last month um, and all the money that's being pushed out into the system, are they here? many trillions of dollars, three or four trillion in, in the States, and another hundred and some odd billion this morning in, in Ottawa on that, and never mind other countries, Germany. And I think that money's pushed out there. And I think the, you're going to see the price of things start to r- rampage up. Maybe, I don't know if it's going to be like a 1980 one again, but I think the the prices of, of, of commodities and things like that, are the, the public's going to start seeing these things move, whether it's gold or uh, or copper, because uh, when the uh, the economy recovers, they have to get all of the mineral out of the ground or oil because they've shut down half the wells, I and mean, the oil price goes crazy because all of a sudden you can't ramp up those broken-down shale deposits anymore, you know, whatever. But I think the pro- I think the commodity prices are going to pull people into the market, and the brokers is going to be ones going, What's going on here? The public's calling me about oil all of a sudden. I don't know anything about oil. I'm going to go back and learn about that oil, about that, or learn about whatever. I think the public's going to be telling the brokers, you've been managing my wealth and sitting on this balanced portfolio for the last 10 years, and it basically fell apart while you sat there. And now I've now seen gold go to $2,000, $3,000, and copper at 5 bucks a pound, and oil at 150 $200. Find me an oil stock. Find me something where
2: my money's going to grow. You I know? S- I so agree and with that because I, I hear I, that on I, Bloomberg uh, all the time now because they never talk I about. Think, gold. I think
0: I think I think that's what's coming down. Cash. Well, I can't risk that, so I'm going to build the well, George knows the balanced portfolio and you know the bank stocks and uh, you know and three three months ago, two months ago, you listen to the business channels and. All the analysts are saying, "Or oh yeah, you got to keep buying Apple. It's a quality stock. What can ever happen to Apple? You know, and and Boeing. You got to keep buying Boeing. You just pay up for it because yeah, you're going to pay a twenty or thirty multiple. But well, hell, Boeing. You know, there's only two airplane companies in the world. You, what can happen to Boeing? You got to keep buying it. And you know, and it's all done now. It's all gone. <laughs> and it's going to come back from somewhere. And Maybe that's my rant of the day and I should finish there, but I think it's going to come from the, the price of the products are going to draw the public in and they're going to re-educate the brokerage industry about finding projects as opposed to just sitting on wealth management.
2: I couldn't agree more on the, on the gold because, like I said, I, I hear it more and more on Bloomberg and listen every day. They typically never talk about it, but I think as people hear about gold, the only thing that's going up, people are going to ask for, where do I put my money in gold? And I think that's one of the big things. But George, back to what you said. So, if people are to call companies if they get interested in gold, what are some of the best questions to ask? Or, or Rod, like what should they be asking for?
0: Well, uh, for a small company, if we're going down to companies that my background was, in that is, uh, I I go for a a physical discovery as opposed to a geological one. It's it's nice to say you've got an. Uh, uh, a theory about our body being a thousand feet below surface and you've got all the geophysical data that says it's down there but for a junior company to drill those first holes or something like that if they go wrong it's all over where a project as they used to be always to say you can basically you can kick it in other words it's if it's not at surface it's close to it you know a, a few holes or a trench or some geochemistry in the in the the sediments whatever you know you can you can basically you can hone in on the project and if your people are good
3: that's very much chester's playbook isn't it
0: oh yeah 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 if you can you know you start off with something small and and you build it from there you don't necessarily have to do the big feasibility study and prove out the biggest ore body in in the area but you can develop that ore body over time you know uh I think he started Glamis with a barrel of uh, crushed up rock hanging <laughs> from a from a tripod and 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 running running uh, running acid solution through it to see what came with the ball in the barrel. You know, I and mean, you know these are uh, the percussion rig uh, in my deal they, they, Al Miller put a put basically a, a, a track type uh, percussion rig in the back of an army truck because you could drive around the rolling hills and move it easy and
3: innovative there, right? and and so uh like for 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 practical for a new person you, you want to know what the market environment is. so it's important to know if you're listening to ABC mind's story. Uh, what are uh, DCE and FGH mines? What what are what are those stocks? What's the market value of those stocks? The market value is the number of shares times the price. So we call that market value or market cap. So you want an idea where are uh, uh, geologic anomaly stocks trading at? Where are early stage drill pra- uh, projects trading at? Where are stocks that have developed a preliminary resource of X-Mini. So that's just, that's a little bit of research to do that. So you have some industry benchmarks. And then when you're talking to, uh, when you're talking to the people running the company, I think it's important to say, well, to ask, well, what is your next milestone? So you, you, you following a story, they publish some good drill results, and you phone them up and you talk to them, and the stock's already gone up. It's like, okay, that's fine. It went up, it settled back. Now I'm going to look to buy a little bit. What's the next program that's going to add some value? Okay, that's that's the first question, and the guy should the the I, sorry, I keep saying guy, the the management person should explain that to you. And then your follow-on question would be, well, how much will it cost to uh, reach that threshold? And then uh, do you have that funding on hand or are you going to have to uh, do some more fundraising in order to put that funding in place? And then, of course, if 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 that's required, that's going to change the metrics of your valuation calculation a little bit because you're going to have more shares issued, Uh, and then you say, okay, uh, here's a guy, who's here's a company who's drilled a hole, it looks very exciting, Uh, if they're able to now confirm this hole, and Rod's just talked about the real-world experience of Afton, you know, they drilled a couple of dusters, they moved in a different direction they got some value Now we know we've got some substance. We're going to have some tonnage. So you say to them, well, how much, you know, how much more? What's the next milestone? So the next milestone might be a grid drill program to turn that stuff into a preliminary resource. Okay. How much does that cost? Okay. If we get there, what does the market currently value those things at? And then it's a simple risk-reward calculation, and that's where the speculation part comes in. And you say, well, I'm willing to bet $5,000 from which I might only recover 1500 but I might make 50 Is that a good risk-reward? In, in George's, yeah, yeah. Bo- in George's yeah. book, I'll make that bet every
0: day. Yeah, and the other thing is too is you. I, I used to always try and average into projects, you know. Whatever you might again, you might get that initial. I'm raising some ten or fifteen or twenty cent stock to get this project started. Okay, and but you keep some money in in reserve because you know the the first couple of holes may not work out, so the thing may languish there. So, but but the management still thinks you know they're honing in on something or something in the holes or the trenches or whatever that. Keep them encouraged, so you might get to buy a bit more at a bit lower, lower price. Maybe it's off season, uh, middle of winter in the north or something like that, whatever. And then the thing we run up, and you'll you'll ease off, but you might get an exciting spring, so you'll you'll loosen up a little bit. You give them some shares back, and you, you average in, average out, you know, whatever. And you try and you try and lay the market spec with the the sentiment of the investor, and and so on. You know, you can you can build a position by averaging in, and and you can exit the position not just because. The thing fails, but there's there's all kinds of you know like you say there's a the discovery, then there's the waiting period for drill results, and then there's the feasibility, and there's, there's all these different cycles in these things. And so the, Rod, uh, that's a,
3: that's a great point. And and Jim, uh, as a further answer, uh, some uh, one of the biggest mistakes that certainly new investors in the space, but e- even people playing. Um, with, you know, a limited bankroll is you don't have to buy all of the stock that you want on day one. And when you take some profits, you don't have to sell the entire position, especially if you've had a, especially if you've had a big move in the stock, you know, if a stock's gone from, say, 50 cents to $3, uh, at $3, you only need to sell a small number of your shares to get all your money back kind of thing. And, and so I,
0: I... take a profit, make money. Like, why should I sell some now? You know, it's always like, it's, they're still working. It's still, yeah, but bad things can happen. i tell them, you know, whatever, you know, uh, the last three weeks, uh, bad things can happen. They come out of nowhere. You know and It may not be that your, your mineral property, uh, the last hole is no good. It could be something out of left field, and so you always try to make you know make sure you've got your initial investment out, especially in a junior stock, and and also have some some cash on hand because if bad things do happen, it might just be a temporary bad thing like uh, a nine eleven where all of a sudden okay the world gets going again you know whatever and and there's always ways the, the, the reasons to exit or, or enter these different markets and that that aren't just because of the uh, the actual work program itself that. It could become all secondary after a while because
3: because people hear the term penny mining stock or speculative investing, and they they equate it with gambling. but Rod, you probably had a lot of guys on your book I know I know I did who were consistently successful because they applied some discipline and a portfolio management. Uh, to their holdings. And so so they would have a position in a winning story that was definitely going higher, but in a profit position, they'd take a little bit off the table and over time you're lowering your average cost, which, which is another way of saying you're lowering your risk and, Uh and, and the ideal one, which, which usually only happens when you're buying 5 10 15 cent stocks sometimes you get a quick double for me no brainer you sell half your position and people yeah, go oh the yeah but the, you know stocks going to 10 bucks and yeah i think it is going to 10 bucks but guess what the stock i now i now the, the remaining shares that i own cost me nothing i have no risk
0: so yeah. and it maybe it's it maybe going to 10 bucks but you were sure that to, to buy it at 15 cents so let the next guy help it go to ten bucks. You don't help it anymore. Let them take it higher. You know, I don't know who I sell my clients. Absolutely. You know, you're let let somebody else who likes it. To, you, you were shrewd enough to get in there early. Now let somebody else do the the legwork, now to the next level, and so to speak, and you take advantage of their work and so on. Another thing I used to like looking for foreign projects was was uh, old properties that were reworked again. You know, I I. I've been around a number of projects where they've got old adits or or tunnels or shafts, and you go back to the turn of the century, not this one the last century and you know a, a couple of old prospectors driving a, a an adit into a hillside thirty forty fifty feet into quartz with a hand steel and a sledge oh, uh, some high grade around old dane that needed uh, a true to, to 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 make it worthwhile in in nineteen say ten or so whatever could be the the heart of a a low-grade porphyry that could be you know a few thousand feet around that the feeder system for that vein it was just the the part that the old technology recognized back in the day you know so i used to love the guys that projects that were the old-timers worked on over a number of years through sweat and toil because sweat and toil meant a lot you know it wasn't easy just absolutely let's go buy it and sell it kind of thing whatever they were out there you know hand steel and, you know, uh, black powder and the whole, in the whole nine yards. You know, it, was, uh, it, was, it had to be worthwhile to stay doing it. There was something there.
2: We've been at this for about an hour now, so we'll try and close this off. Any, any kind of thoughts that, that you'd like to share with people, Rod, on, on the future of mining in Canada right now? You know, gold at this at recent high, is there stuff? Is there a project out there right now that you're looking at that think that are, are doing well? Like, um, I'll just throw one out there, Great Bear, that's done well. Um, is there something out there that people should look at i'm not asking you to recommend a stock or anything just stuff to look at yeah. or? all right
0: i i think the i think the sector um I, I, don't know, I don't know which part of the world i mean the world the, the mining sector now is all over the world it's basically any any part of the world can be exciting any one time i i i just think that these uh it's been such a low and a, and a negative blow brought on by negative governments and things like that, and permitting issues, and save the planet, and all these different things. I think now reality is going to set in, and there's there's the value is there, and people are going to recognize the value. And uh, uh, whether or not it comes out of the housing market and goes into something, I don't know. But I I I just sense that there's there's, there's something, there's a wave coming, you know, whatever. And I don't you know how big it gets, whatever, but I went through the wave of eighty eighty one and that. And it was a, it was an amazing thing to watch. And I thought we we're going to get it a few years ago and I hung around maybe too long and brokerage business, but it, it didn't come. It sort of came and in, in 2011 and kind of petered out, but I think that was just the first little wave. I think the big wave is coming behind that. And I think the events of the last few months is going to be the fuel or in the few weeks, I should say, and it's going to be something that they're going to look back and they're going to write books about, you know, whatever how things how things all of a sudden caught everybody off guard and the runaway train happened with the uh, resource prices and things.
3: Couldn't agree uh, couldn't agree more, Rod. Hey, thanks for your time. Um, great to have the kind of conversation that we often have, but in front of a, a, an audience.
0: Uh, but no, I, I appreciate, I appreciate the, the the interest. You know, whatever. It's uh, it's fun to go back on, in time, and like I say, it, it wasn't all uh, it wasn't all dollar success, but it was uh, it was an interesting journey, and uh, overall, I enjoyed every every day, every hour of it. You know, whatever it was, uh, it, was
2: it was a hell of a deal. Man. I do have one final question for you with technology mm-hmm. that that's been uh, developing uh, you know you see some mining companies talking about technology and finding the next door body is technology going to play a role in in the next new discoveries
0: oh i'm sure it will i mean look at how uh leaching changed the gold industry you know whatever uh technology comes along um um, you, know, you know, look at how autogenous grinding and that changed the milling industry of of of, of ore bodies and that. There's always technology going to come along. Um, what it'll be, you know, whether it be some magic wand they're going to go over the earth with and pinpoint an ore body. I don't see that happening, I've, you know, in, in my time maybe, but I mean, it, again, technology changes the world. Uh, it could be something, uh, you know, who would have thought, you know, Back when I was a young guy coming out of school, that, you know, uh, 0.5 grams per ton ore body was not really somebody even talked about, you know, whatever. And now it's like, it's a, wow, you got 0. 0.5 grams per ton? Well, you know, how much of that you got? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, technology will change. It'll come around. I don't know what, if there's any on the horizon, but it'll be there along the way. Yeah?
2: And I'm sure the price of gold has changed the economics of a lot of deposits out there.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the price gets up, especially in U.S. dollar prices, and that. I mean, it's probably it's already at record highs in every other currency, but the U.S. dollar. But the world doesn't recognize it because, you know, the world's um, stuck on CNBC and the U.S. dollar and such. But, you know, um, the gold mining companies themselves, I don't think are complaining too much what they're doing as far as their production. That you know, there's not too many that are saying we're we're not making a dollar. Those are in production. Now it's just a matter of I. I hear there's not enough production coming through. There's not, there's not enough uh, ore bodies been found. That the, you know, you talk about peak oil and that we may have gone through peak gold. I don't know. You know.
3: Energy the, 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 energy inputs can be up to thirty percent of your operating costs. So those yeah. are down considerably as a result of uh, of oil coming to twenty dollars. Uh, the Canadian dollar gold price is twenty two hundred and fifty dollars. So declining operating costs, accelerating uh, uh, revenue, uh, a new viable, good grade, uh, long life gold deposit in Canada is an asset that's going to be highly, highly sought after. And, and- some of the some of the bigger mining companies ignore uh, that.
0: Yeah, I was I, I reading an article in the paper. I read the paper I read it was a paper. It was just last week about. Again, the environmentalists, you know, uh, how terrible the mining industry is, and in that. Well, there's, I forget who they are now, but they discovered that uh, 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 waste dumps of mines, of that they're uh, they're uh, carbon sumps. They're the, 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 the chemical composition of the average Canadian uh, ore body is that the uh, the tailings pond, the, the tailings pond, the tailing dumps, and that are uh, are carbon carbon sumps. If you fluff it up and spread it around, it actually sucks the touch the carbon dark stuff out of, out of the out of the air, you know. Who would thought the mining industry would help out the environment that way? But you know, I means this is technology talking. There's not a 2nd on the thought I know, but you know, can you imagine if if uh, tailing ponds and tailing dumps became the the savior of the of the air supply in that? You know, mm.
2: who knows? It's kind of a perfect storm for for mining right now, for sure. With the price of gold and the, and the lowering costs, we see that already in some of the. Uh, Mid-sized and, and, and majors that are reporting. I've seen it with B2 Gold just last week with record record revenues and record yeah. profits. And I think that's going to be kind of the norm.
0: Yeah, it, it starts from the top. And, you know, the new months and the barracks will move up first with the big institutional money. It'll filter down to the, the B2s and the humanas and that. They're starting to get some attention now. But they aren't trading like they're, I got to be there. You know, they're not trading like, the the money's all flowing into that industry, and the junior markets, the ones I'm, you know, they're they're all trading like they were back when gold was thirteen, twelve hundred dollars. You know, yep. they haven't figured that one out yet. As far as the the public, the institutions there's, are figuring it out. They're they're moving over to the to the new months and things and such. But the the retail market is not not there at all.
3: Well, you know, and I guess our up, I guess yeah. in parting, our message is that there is no gold fever. There is no fever like gold fever. And yeah. we haven't we haven't really seen it take
0: off yet. Yeah. Do, do you remember Ian Notley, George, when he came around to our office? Yep. I remember one thing he told me back in the day. This is what 86, 87, and he was the technology or the the charting guy of the the guru of the day. You know, hand done charts and things he had a database. that was as George will tell you, second to none. And he said he gave one of his talks there, and he said. Um, in the eighty eighty one gold boom, when gold was eight hundred dollars and such, there was twenty some odd gold stocks on the S and P five hundred. And in nineteen eighty six seven, there was two. I think one was Newmont and one was uh, might have been Placer going back. Well, if that money just goes there, if the institutions sell a sell a Tesla and buy a, buy a B two gold, like you said, mm-hmm. the money coming out of a Tesla to a B two gold, the stock would just skyrocket or the money came out of a Boeing into a B2 gold or something,
2: you know? Well, we yeah. thank you for your time, Rod. And, and, and I guess oh, I okay. could it's say that yeah. the three, three older gentlemen here that are starting to get a fever or maybe have a fever. <laughs> um, so, so we look forward to the, um, the future of gold we've been waiting for. It. There's been a few fall starts. Me and George talk a lot too. And, um, um, so, we're hoping for better days for our industry and for Canada as a whole, because we're one of the richest resource nations in the world. And I think this will help bring Canada out of, you know, what we're kind of in right now too, like because resources are good paying jobs and build families from those jobs.
0: Yeah. Well, you'll know the top of the market when gold and the Dow are the same price. Well, there you go. That's the top. There you go. It happened in 1932. It happened in 1980, 81. And they say it'll happen again. Gold and the yep. the, gold and the Dow are the same price.
2: Well, hopefully the yep. Dow doesn't and have I've to come down article. to meet it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've got an article from the uh, uh, National Post in September of 1999, the guy going through all that and the chart of gold at the time and so on and, uh, and the gold to Dow theory chart and so on. And, uh, it, yeah, it's peaked out three times in history.
2: Well, uh, again, thank you for your time. And uh, <laughs> it, it's been fun for sure. Okay, guys.
1: Take care. All right. Bye now. And that has been another episode of Canadian Market Watch. Thanks for listening. To hear future episodes, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to provide feedback, ask us a question, or be a future guest on the show, please email podcast at CanadianMarketWatch.com. You can also connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Canadian Market Watch or on Twitter at CDN Market. Join the discussion. This episode has been brought to you by NowCast, a division of the Now Media Group and has been produced by the Nomadic Podcaster.